Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Marguerite Young and inviting the muses. We are on the essays portion of the book on page 97. Uh, we're going to be reading The World of Silence, and I'm pretty sure this is the one where she does her... She said she did a lot of research on the death, and this plays into Miss Macintosh, My Darling. So I'm pretty sure this is the essay about that, where she really went into it. We found, if you're in western Pennsylvania, we found the best coffee house, roasters. It's called O'Neill Coffee House. If you if you can, by chance, are in the vicinity and can get to there, or I don't know if they have a website, you are safe in ordering coffee from there. It is fantastic. I am sipping my second latte of the day. Oh, it is just amazing. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's something else. Another announcement. Oh, yeah. No longer Anchor. So it has been moved to Spotify Podcasters. I believe it's what it's called. I think Spotify bought out Anchor. Um, I kind of saw it coming for a little while. So far, everything's working pretty good. It runs a little bit slower, but that seems to be running pretty well. All right, the world, the world of silence. Close to our world of sound, there lies another world, still veiled in clouds of mystery. It is the world of silence, of those who do not hear. There the senses are only four, sight, smell, taste, touch. Of ears in the man, it may be said that man is present, glorious animal, lord of creation, of earth and waters, birds and beasts. But the ears are missing as functions in the creating of reality, that which comes through the portals of our five senses. The ears in that world of silence are as waxen caskets. The ears bring no sound or meaning, no birdsong, no patter of rain among the April leaves, no voice of lover returning. The 18th century French psychologist Condillac, a pioneer in the field of sensations, relates to illustrate his theory of man as a conspiracy of the senses. The marvelous fiction of a marble statue in which sense by sense is added until the marble statue, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, has awakened into conscious life. From our senses alone evokes, oh, evolves, he suggests the idea of an objective world, but that the world is subjective, our idea. The rose is not the rose in itself, accordingly, but in ourselves, a constellation of form, color, odor, reported by our dreaming senses, which, if otherwise constituted, might have reported difference in the rose. Much depends, therefore, on man, the crucible of his dreaming senses. Jean uh, Chateau, a French experimenter with the cinema in the realm of as if and might be, depicts in motion pictures such as Beauty and the Beast, the subjective quality of all reality, marble statues almost human, trembling on the margin of conscious life, winking, turning their heads, reaching their hands. Many speculative philosophers pondering upon man's illusory nature have concluded that reality is not so much something given and complete as something always in the process of creation and relating to his senses. The French have inclined especially toward a mystical skepticism as to the reality of the outer world apart from man's creative senses. Descartes, Descartes shedding the outer world and all illusion one by one, was hard put to prove his own existence. He could do so only by the now famous formula, I think, therefore, I am. Existence is perception accordingly. Without perception, there may be no existence.
In the world of silence, dreamlike, hovering upon the verge of this, there were there where man is complete except for the ear, except for the perceptions which come through that portal, the deaf, devoid of an important sense in its relations, are as marble statues who see, touch, smell, taste, the rose, but who do not hear the footsteps in the ruined garden, the song of the winter bird, the sign of the whitened leaves. Part of perceptual reality, all that the ear conveys is missing, and theirs is the marble silence as of the tomb. They do not hear. We who hear must think of the silence as exile, like the coldness of Siberian polar winters, or another planet turning silently in a silent sky. Yet who among us has not thought of the silence? Some have dreamed of the silence as blessed as oblivion. Every third person between the ages of 20 and 50 years, as a matter of awful fact and not merely of dream, is deaf in at least one ear. One person out of nine suffers deafness at some period in adult life, and maybe a deafness which he does not recognize, the mind providing the illusion of hearing after the ears have failed. Robert Owen, the British social philosopher and father of utopias, became, in his advanced years, deafened to human voices. He had carried on long debates on socialism with rapturous spirits in the clouds. Old leaders of the world labor movement, whose voices he distinctly heard, he published all they said to him. There are vast numbers of partially deaf persons, each with his problem. Some, as we say of our grandfathers, can hear if they want to hear, or hear more when the wind is silent than when it is blowing. Some, our old grandmothers, do not want to be bothered by the noises in this world. They wear spectacles on their foreheads because they do not want to see, and keep their ear trumpets turned off because they do not want to hear, or because they may be hearing with some interior ear only of memory, the voices far away, the ghostly surf. Beyond these who are, confusing, who are confused by hearing, there are today more than two million persons, totally and absolutely deaf, who are our fellow travelers in this hearing world, this world where much depends on the ear. And some, deafened in early childhood, is faded all memory of sound. Others born deaf are those who have neither the memory of sound nor the power of conceiving it. The unrealized reality, that which we take for granted, the telephone ringing. To understand the silence and all it implies, we shall consider not the partial but the complete deafness of those born deaf or who lose their hearing before the patterns of speech are formed. These have either no conception of sound or no memory of it. The deaf are not really deaf who remember sound, who associate the flow of water with the sound of water flowing. The tragedy of those born deaf is not that they do not hear, but that others hear. Those deafened in later years suffer more acutely from the deprivation complex, as Dr. Carl Menninger calls it than those for whom all sound is a silent music, a music never heard. Even when those who remember sound have adjusted to silence in their night dreams, the oral world remain, returns, teasingly delusive, almost within grasp. Theirs is the myth of Tantalus. In their night dreams, once again cocks crow, bells ring, water flows, the sound of water flowing, the voices call. Feet shuffle among the leaves, there are noises, hammerings. Those deafened within the age of memory hear when they are asleep that they cannot, what they cannot hear when they are awake. Conversations between unseen persons, invisible beings who speak and are not seen, jokes of comedians behind false faces, birdsong without bird, rustle of curtain in the wind, old sounds of memory float forever in the unconscious like unmelted icebergs, shimmering and vast. Their dream hearing is a lost omniscience, an impotent power, a self-deception, for wakefulness brings arid silence, but the nights are noisy. They hear perfectly in dreams, whispers, music, echo of music. They carry on long conversations with strangers and with the dead. One man who became deaf experienced many dreams of corn because the corn grows on ears, he said. An another dreamed of beetles talking. Old time floods back with all its vanished sounds, even those but dreamed of the stars singing, the voice of the moth.
But those born deaf or deafened in early childhood do not dream, may be safely said, of any sounds at all. Their dream world is prelingual and communication, even in the dream world, takes place in archaic sign language. The imitation of the objects of perception which the body makes, sign for flight, the flapping of arms like wings, grimace, antic dance, sign for confusion or deafness, small wheeling of the hand around the ear, sign for peace, the hands folded. The rhythms of sign language itself silent are the counterpart of music. If the deaf are familiar with the manual alphabet, they may dream of names, sentences, books spelled out by the fingers on the air. If they are lip readers, they may dream of moving lips, of faces in the light. But no congenitally deaf, congenitally deaf person has ever dreamed, they may be safely guessed, of the human voice, of the crowing of a cock before the dawn reaching its fingers of rosy light, of a train's whistle, a cry, a whisper. The deaf man's waking life amputated from hearing is like the hearing man's dream life. Our dreams, too, are often conducted in silence. We may dream the most amazing dreams without a word being said by anybody. Enigmatic Chinamen pursue us, and we are never told why. The dreams of the hearing carry the dreamer back, like the deaf, to some old prelingual world in the womb of time where things take the place of words, where language is not necessity. The waking life of the deaf man is like the hearing man's dream of silent signs, variable, ambiguous. The deaf man sees as he walks the city streets, the faces, bodies, motions, emotions, gestures, grimaces, antics, signs, feels a severance between himself and all he sees is in a dream. Much that we take for granted is to him unintelligible. Much that we feel to be rational, he feels to be irrational as a Chinaman climbing the garden wall in the erratic world of night. How shall he interpret? To the neglected deaf man, the universe, all reality lies in the chaotic darkness and confusion of wild waste chance much like a dream. In the 54 centuries or more in which man has been a lingual man, there have been only 300 years of recognition of the rights of the deaf and often of only the most sporadic nature. To turn one's face away from the deaf child is a form of murdering the deaf child or relegating him to a silence which is death in life and psychologically not far different from the brutal practices of antiquity. In ancient Greece, the deaf children were exposed. The Greeks idealizing the human body had no knowledge of the merits of defects. The Greek marble statue, representative of the ideal, is cold, colorless, devoid of individuality, the mark of time, the mole, the gray hair, the twisted vein. In Sparta, where the state was idealized, the deaf children were thrown to the great pit at Tegetus. In Rome, where the art of mimicry was at its highest, little deaf children would have been the masters of mimicry. Greater actors offstage than many actors on stage were thrown over a bridge into the river Tiber. The Greenlanders threw their deaf into holes in the ice. In large sections of the world today, the deaf are still effectively, effectually destroyed or ignored. Even in in America, one of the most enlightened countries in relation to the deaf, not all of them reach through education. In rural areas or even in the streets of great modern cities like New York with its bevies of skyscrapers, its amphibians like great whales dreaming against the sky, there are deaf persons who can communicate only through the ancient sign language, a language natural to man which, which hearing man has forgotten. There are deaf persons whose lips have formed no syllables, who have no knowledge of words, whose fingers have not formed the letters of the alphabet. They are the deaf who have suffered rejection by the human society, who have been left in isolation, even today, and in democratic America, much as the deaf in imperial Japan, or confined in prison wards with murderers, employed in the making sometimes of paper coffins, or in Nazi Germany, or extinguished. There are more ways of rejecting a deaf child than a hearing. 
True, in 1776, the year of the Declaration of Independence, the first American deaf mutes were educated in the arts of speech, but their method of instruction was held secret like an invention not yet patented. The children educated were two generations of deaf aristocrats, members of the Boiling family of Goochlandville, Virginia, which was the ancestry of Edith Boiling, wife of President Wilson. While the great numbers of poor deaf went uninstructed, even unnoticed, their instructor, imported from Europe, was placed under bond of $5,000 not to divulge for seven years his way of teaching. This seems to have been in the infant democracy like the powdered peruke, a continuation of the noble tradition in England where, at the time, deaf education was looked upon as the private property of landed bluebloods, fox hunters riding to hunt who could not hear the barking of the dogs, the crying of the fox. The spirit was exclusive. The modern program for the education of the deaf child begins with the cradle. When the mother's mother discovers that her child is deaf, she must not turn her face away. She must continue talking. Little deaf children, if they had not, have not been isolated, laugh aloud, cry aloud, call their mothers, talk even in their sleep. The mother helps the deaf child not only with his building blocks, but with the building of the world of the ears. The child learns to speak by placing his fingers on his mother's lips, cheeks, vocal cords. At kindergarten for the deaf, the mute lips learn to speak, even if at home they have been silent. By putting his arms around a music box, the deaf child learns that there is such a thing as sound, the difference between fast and slow. With musical instruments, horns, flutes, mouth harps, he learns breath control, to breathe without hissing through his teeth. The felt music discharges itself in action. The image of the eye translating itself into the dream of sound, the flower becoming the waltz, the spade becoming the march. The modern education of the deaf is founded upon the fact that the deaf can speak. The deafness is not necessarily accompanied by muteness. Lip reading is a lifesaver to the deaf, if being the one form of communication places the deaf child in proximity with the hearing. Perhaps because of the close connection of mother with child, lip reading is a field in which many women have been pioneers. The first lip reading school in America, the Lexington School for the Deaf in New York City, was founded by Mrs. Isaac Rosenfeld, the mother of a deaf child. She refused to acknowledge that because her child was deaf, it could not speak. She imported the first lip-reading teacher for the first oral school, which she started with a group of deaf, apparently mute children in her own living room. Soon all were talking, signing. Today, through the progress of oral education, there are many expert lip-readers among the deaf, world travelers who fool the ship's captain, the train conductor. Many are linguists reading lips in many languages. Some are experts in ancient Greek. For a while, for a long while, working at Welfare Island, there was a deaf lip-reader of broken English. Lip reading has many advantages over the ear as a way of listening. It places the lip reader in a position of superiority to the non-lip reader, even the hearing, for it gives them a sense of omniscience of all hearing. With a pair of binoculars, the lip reader can read the lips of the captain on the deck of a ship a mile away, the lips of the businessman standing at the window of the other skyscraper. Pope Innocent III declared that the deaf might marry if they could make their intentions clear by unequivocal signs. The signs fail only in the supersensual realm, that of abstraction, of illusion, for the deaf there is love, but there is no time in our sense. Time, their native experience suggests, may be our illusion, a human construct. It may be we who pass, as philosophers say, and time that stands still. The signs have no way of expressing time, like paintings. The signs are all in the present tense, the eternal flow of now, and express relations without need of syntactical distinctions. A deaf man knows of himself no time except by sensual <coughs> image of change. The flight of the birds, the leaves turning from gold to brown, the darkening sky. The sign for past is the same as the sign for death, pointing backward over the shoulder. The hands may initiate the movements of the sun across the sky. The shadow of the sundial, the arms of the clock. These are artifices in imitative syntactical language, 
by none of which it would be possible to catch a train. The sign language is believed by some to come down from some age of pre-language. When the body itself was the hieroglyphics of flight, rose, swan, tree, when it must enact, each image perceived when it was its own time. The signs used among Indians are often identical with the signs used by the deaf, the sign for truth, a straight line drawn across the mouth, the sign for life, a crooked line, the sign for I have forgotten, the hand drawn across the brow, for I understand, the finger pointed to the forehead, the sign for frogs, a cupped hand straight forward, jumping with two little jumps, the sign for fish, the narrowed hand straight forward, gliding from and past the body like a fish. The sign language was the one universal method of communication among Indian tribes speaking various languages. Certain signs were used to express whole ideas of symbolic content, nuance, shade of meaning. The entire body was often employed in the making of signs which provided a more varied vocabulary than the finger alphabet. Early Christian travelers among the Indians found it almost impossible to tell which were the deaf and dumb, as all seemed to be signing, and often would laugh at silent jokes. The signs were a particular con convenience when the Indians were stalking animals. An enterprising Christian missionary and Mr. Hadley, pressed by the universality of signs distributed to the Indians throughout the wilderness, that pray be stalked at the Lord's Prayer and Sermon on the Mount and signs. The sign language persists among Indians today as in the time before Columbus. Today, in a Greenwich Village coffee shop, may occasionally be seen carrying on a rapid conversation of signs, two persons, an Indian and a deaf painter. They discuss many subjects, Kantian metaphysics, Baroque architecture, Virginia Woolf, Stalin's Russia, and forms of gestures made by their hands, arms, feet, shoulders. The sign language initiative, imitative of the sphere of sight, grows with the perception of visual images. If a horse gallops, then the speaker must become a ga horse galloping. Signs which we all see are for farewell, a wave of the hand, for secret, the finger touching the lips. That signs are a natural language we see in children's games. The child imitates the tree by bending his body. The child imitates the train by puffing out his cheeks. The cheeks puffed out may also designate the wind. Some authorities think that if deaf children were completely isolated, they would develop a sign language to correspond with the syntactical language and the expression of every thought. Though no isolated race of death is known to exist on this planet, the language of a large empire, the Chinese, is founded on signs imitating the mind's perception of the physical object. The Egyptian hieroglyph, unlike the Chinese, is only partly pictorial due to the Semitic traders who brought to the coasts of Egypt with other fabulous items of merchandise such as spices, silks, jewels, one yet more fabulous, the sense of time, a syntactical language. The greatest limitation of the sign language is that it requires a light and that we have forgotten it. A world of silence which, since it cannot strike the ear, must strike the eye. Light is required by all deaf persons, the lip reader as well as the signer. The face of the speaker must be seen in a strong light. A great trial of the lip reader in earlier periods was the bearded face. The beard, like dark glasses, may be a psychological defense, a mask worn by persons who do not wish to be seen and are in flight away from reality. Other obstacles were the handlebar mustache, the window, widow's veil, the flirt's fan. Today, though no deaf man may become a Catholic priest, yet a Catholic priest may become a deaf man, as one father expresses it. The church continues, however, its traditional interest in the deaf, its concern for the spiritual welfare. A Catholic priest acts as a mediator to the deaf in large cities, as confidant and advisor. Catholic seminarians learn in the course of their duties not only the manual alphabet, but the sign language so that they may communicate with their deaf parishioners, even those who cannot speak. The dying deaf man receives the last rites of the church, themselves made up of signs, and the sign language of the deaf and dumb, a language older than the cross. 
Perhaps last rites were always made up largely of symbols and signs, because all persons, when they are dying, sense by sense departing from them, must tremble on the margin of the silence. Deaf women may be accepted as nuns in certain orders, perhaps those which take the vow of silence in this life. Lay rabbis serve the Jewish deaf in the temples of great cities, preaching to few or many. They celebrate in sign language older than the Ten Commandments written on stone, their high holy days. In silent sign language, the rabbi depicts his hands moving in the air, the parables of creation, Noah's ark, the rising of the flood waters, the doves of peace, Lot's conversation with the angels, Lot's wife turning to a pillar of salt, the dreams of pharaohs, their interpretations, the signs of God, Jacob's dream of a ladder to heaven. The Jews carry on, too, the traditional faith that the deaf shall confess themselves. The New York Society for the Welfare of the Jewish Deaf provides psychiatric treatment to deaf persons suffering from spiritual conflict. The deaf are as normal as the hearing, but the problem is enhanced by a real isolation, a real amputation. A hearing schizophrenic may think he is deaf, for example, but a deaf schizophrenic thinks he cannot hear and cannot hear. Psychiatric treatment, however, is largely based on talking it out, expressing the hidden secret of the suppressed desire. How shall a deaf man speak if he has no language? How shall he speak of his guilt complex if he has not even one small word? This is the problem which the Jewish agency is faced with. What to do in those cases where the deaf man, confronted by ills, which find the solution in language, has no language, his lips having never formed a syllable? What if he has never heard, even in the remotest corner of his brain, the small, the still, small voice of conscience? How shall he tell his dreams if he has no speech, no words, only signs like those in which the dream transpired? No language, but the silence. The doctor though an authority on the dreams, must be at a loss when confronted by a deaf man whose only language is the sign of the dream. If the deaf man has dreamed of falling, he makes a motion as of falling, but it is a leaf that fell in the dream. How shall the doctor understand the sign? Or when the deaf man points backward over his shoulder, the variations of difference, difference between past and yesterday and death. The Jews, pragmatic people, are working on a solution of this problem when both cosmic and psychological mental therapy of the citizen isolated by deafness. An interpreter of signs accompanies the deaf man to the doctor's office, acting as medium as interpreter of the sign into the word, of the word into the sign. Few Jew Jewish deaf have ever been involved in criminal cases. Many non-Jewish deaf have passed as Jewish because of the broad program of welfare. The Negro, too, has passed as Jew in the silent world. The Abbe de Lepe, founded in Paris, 1770, the first deaf-mute institution, the pattern of American institutions for the deaf, the beloved Abbe Sicard, his successor wearing the hieroglyphic cloak of the Master of Signs, has been the subject of commemorative medals, vases, urns, statues, some made by the deaf. Sicard imparted his knowledge to the Reverend Thomas Gallaudet, the great American pioneer of the silence, whose hearing son by a deaf mother was destined to follow in his footsteps. The Reverend Gallaudet devoted his whole life to the building up of Christ's kingdom among, among the deaf and dumb. His prayer to the Creator was ever to remember the deaf in all nations, and every deaf man, he said, was a spark of divinity which could be blown up, himself a master of signs. He recited long narratives, solely by the motion of his head and his expressive features. He baptized, married, buried the deaf. He ascertained from an old man, deaf and dying, his last wishes in regard to the disposition of his property. St. Anne's Church for the Deaf Mutes in New York City, a Gallaudet Foundation, meets today for lack of any building of its own at famous old St. Mark's of the Bowery, church which seems the apt place for silence. A vicar who himself is deaf preaches to a deaf congregation of many nations, such as are found in a great seaport, a silent sermon. 
Hymns of the Episcopal Service are signed upon the air by a deaf choir which has had special training so that the signs are uniform. Every sign is a work of art, like that of a dancer who scarcely moves. The sign for God, a line drawn down the center of the body. The sign for child, a rocket in the arms. The sign for heaven, a great circle pointed upward. The sign for earth, a small circle pointed downward. The hearer feels in this church his difference from others, that it is they who speak and hear, he who is silent. Members of the congregation, skilled lip readers, persons often of great learning, greet him when the services are over, welcoming him among them. To deaf audiences, deaf actors, masters of science, have performed in silence the plays of the hearing. The Broadway hit, such as Arsenic and Old Lace, the favorite of any season, such as the Gilbert Sullivan musical comedy. The deaf actors have acted out Shakespeare's Macbeth, in which it may be remembered there are many signs as a sign of guilt, the lady who cannot wash the stain away from her lily-white hands as she signs. Hamlet, a medley of mad, wild signs, lends itself especially to the silence. Hamlet, the melancholy deaf Dane, strides across this mortal stage, all cloaked in black, sees his father's ghost that clanks in silver armor, making a sign to him to indicate that he has perished at the hands of a murderer, inspects the skull he... Respects the skull of the sexton, poor York, the deaf and the dead, with eye holes where there were eyes, ear holes where there were ears. Recites by movements with his shoulders, feet, hands, the famous soliloquy, to be or not to be, which is the problem of the silence. Pondering in sign language upon whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, which take arms against the sea of troubles, and by opposing the end them. Whether to be silent or give battle to ghosts, shadows, dreams, memories, ideas, associations of ideas. For father, his hand placed at the visor, a cap for mother, his hand traced across his cheek like an infantile memory of mother in relation with child. For the roaring of the ocean, a lifting and falling of hands. For men, the index finger held straight upward. For in interment, the hands lowered slowly to the ground, the earth, which is the mother. This was first published in Flair Annual, 1952. I have every intention. I love sign language. I, I've always been kind of a little fascinated with it, and I know a couple of languages, so I just, it's an extension of that, really. It's like another language. The mechanics are the same. Um, so I've been on the internet and taken some internet courses that way and, and, and learning a little bit of a tiny bit of sign language, mainly because when I lose my hearing, when I get older, because I will, because I like loud music, uh, I fully intend to use sign language and not a hearing aid because what the contraption. That's all there is to it. Uh, anyways, very interesting. A lot of the deaf and that that uh, that connection between deaf and consciousness um, is in Miss Macintosh, my darling. All right, thank you for listening. Bye.